Hello, my name is Melinda True, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Dancing Through the Storm, exploring addiction and mental illness while inspiring change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dancing Through the Storm. Today, I have a wonderful guest that I'm very excited about. Her name is Robin Monson-Dupuis, and she is a mental health psychotherapist. She also works with individuals with um, substance abuse issues, and she also runs a support group called GRASP. Um, She's the facilitator, and GRASP is Grief Response After Substance Passing. Um, Robin started the Greenfield Chapter a year ago after losing her son. So we are going to talk to Robin about some different subjects today that are hopefully going to really help those who are going through some tough times right now during the holidays. Robin is also going to talk about her son, Ethan. Robin, can you please just tell me a little bit about your son, Ethan? Well, thank you for the opportunity to share his story. And it is particularly appropriate now um, at this time as we're approaching the holidays, because I think of my son often Um, we're approaching two years since he died from an accidental heroin overdose. He died two days after Christmas in 2016. And he had been um, in treatment four to six times, various treatment facilities throughout the state of Wisconsin. And he um, was coming off of um, 19 months of being free from heroin. And... um, was also uh, coming off of um, medication-assisted treatment, one of the varieties of of medications that help those who are recovering from an opioid um, addiction is methadone. There's also Suboxone and Vivitrol. He was on methadone for 19 months and in September got off of methadone. And unfortunately, his uh, experience of um, after becoming clean and sober um, relapsed Um, with opioids is extremely lethal because tolerance is way down. And so should somebody relapse when they are no longer on the um, medications that assist with opiate recovery becomes very risky. And in fact, though we talked with him about the risk of this um, in the 90 days after he got off the methadone in September, unfortunately, he relapsed at Christmas when he came home to visit he knew that coming back to Milwaukee from where he lived in La Crosse was a risk for him because um, his contacts uh, for heroin were here. He assured us he would be able to be fine and resist that. But as we know, addiction has such a, a, a vicious, tenacious hold on the mind. And he, in fact, did um, pick up some heroin and used um, on his way out of town to go back home to La Crosse. Um, We are so grateful that the four days he was home, we had a wonderful visit with him. It will forever be a gift to us. But at age 25, um, the the normal dose of heroin that I think that he had been accustomed to using was not one that his um, body could tolerate. So Ethan's journey started when he was a senior in high school in 2008 and struggled with mental health issues um, and um, substance uh, use disorder. 
The opioid piece is far too common. He, like many young people, was prescribed um, painkillers due to sports injuries and um, opioids, uh, painkillers also after uh, wisdom teeth extraction. And as he had shared with us throughout his years of treatment, he was aware that he, he said, I have an addictive brain, mom. I know that now. And it's true. We, there's addiction history on both sides of the family, uh, my side and his father's side. And um, so we talked openly about that addiction runs in both sides of our family and he needs to be very, very um, watchful and very careful. And, you know, our young people think that they're invincible. And he said, yeah, mom, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> you guys could just hear him say this. Yeah, mom, I know, I know, I know. So we know that the rate of prescribing of opioids in our country has been decreasing, thankfully, um, through the medical community in our, in our country since 2014. However, all of those uh, people out there in our country who have become addicted to painkillers, unfortunately and tragically, um, have turned to heroin and other synthetic forms of opioids to... Um, to get relief from the addiction, the addiction of, of that is produced by opioids is just so tenacious. And uh, Ethan story, like many others, he struggled valiantly, um, but in his uh, relapse, uh, turned back to heroin, and by his body couldn't take that. So um, it is just you know, as every parent um, looks back over the journey. Ours was eight and a half years trying to assist him in in recovery. Um, families look back and you 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 think, oh, what if we would have tried this, or what if he would have done that, or what if she could have only stayed in treatment this long? And I think I have, in the two years almost since he died, I have really tried to put to rest the guilt uh, over my own. Um, awareness that as a therapist and substance abuse counselor, I couldn't even save my son. And what we know is addiction does not choose its victims based on who you are, where you live, how much money you have, who you know. Addiction is an illness. Simply because one has training like I do, it's not a protective factor necessarily. Addiction is a brain disease, and we know it affects brain functioning and opioid addiction is particularly um, particularly pernicious. And we need to know that illness is something to be treated with compassion and kindness, not judgment or shame. We can't reserve compassion and kindness and love and tolerance for those who are are struggling with the mighty illness of cancer, but somebody with a, a, a mighty illness like addiction, we look at them and we try to um, maybe ignore them or we judge them or we tell them, why don't you just quit? You don't have enough willpower. And I, I, I think that the shift that our country needs to make in how we view those people who struggle with addiction is one that I see some signs starting, but we have a ways to go because surely one suffering from addiction is living in a cage of hell that we don't need to heap upon them more judgment because I can tell you that people struggling with addiction struggle with self-loathing and their, their own shame can't even match the amount that we heap upon them. So, 
um, the destigmatizing um, that needs to occur regarding addiction is something that I feel very much um, dedicated to doing now um, in Ethan's honor. So uh, when you talk about the destigmatizing, um, you had, when we had talked previously, we had this conversation because you do educate um, children and go to high schools and talk to them about Ethan and how addiction affects people. So you use this analogy of this cage and I, I it really resonated with me. So can you just kind of talk about that, like how you presented this to the kids? So um, what was uh, very uh, surprising to me when I spoke to some high school um, classes um, for their health unit was that they had this perception that, and they use this language addict, which I, I, a little side note here, I, I really um, want to uh, avoid using that label. We don't call people who have the illness of cancer, we don't call them a cancer. And why should we call people who have the illness of addiction an addict? So people with the illness of addiction, it's as though they are they're in the world, but they're in this cage. And early on, they go in the cage and they might be able to leave the cage. But as the illness progresses, the amount of time they spend in the cage becomes longer. The cage becomes darker. The cage becomes smaller. It's hard to move around. It's hard to see light coming in. It's hard to feel hopeful. And, it, and that hopelessness um, becomes just as strong of a cage as the steel bars might. And and yet people on the outside look at this person and they see them talking and eating and functioning and walking and maybe even driving places. And maybe even they have a job or in school. What they don't see is this invisible cage surrounding that person. And so these kids had this impression that that people who, as they said, get high all the time, it just must be like one big party, one party all the time, getting high. Um, it It must be fun. And I said, Oh my goodness, it is hell on earth. It's like living in a cage. You can't maybe see the cage surrounding that person with the illness of addiction, but make no mistake, it's there. It is there. And that cage grows more tight and 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 more suffocating the longer the illness progresses. And rather than turn our backs on somebody who is suffering from uh, addiction, we need to try to find a way to reach in, grab hold of their hand, help them to figure a way out of the cage. They need that help and support just as somebody with cancer needs help and support. I agree. That is just a really good analogy and a, and a very great point. Um, I really would like to talk about the things that you have done in the community um, in Ethan's name. And I know that you have a lot, I mean, you just went running when, when Ethan passed away because you really wanted to make a difference. And I have felt that same thing, just that you have to have some kind of purpose so that their mm -hmm. passing isn't in vain. Um, and so I have felt that myself and, and you've really done so very much. So if you could just kind of talk about um, some of the things that you have done in the community um, and things that are still going on that you are still committed to, to this day. 
So, Melinda, one of the the concepts that I came across early on after Ethan died, and so Christmas passed, his funeral was January 3rd, and then the year just stretched out in front of me and my husband and Ethan's um, only sibling, his sister. And those months were dark and, and cold, and I realized quickly that one of the ways that I was going to begin to heal was to not just sit on the couch and cry, but I needed to do something that would honor Ethan's mighty fight against this illness. And I thankfully came across a concept in all of the reading that I did on grief recovery. And this concept is called co-destiny. And this was created by a physician, Dr. Joe Casper, who after the loss of his son, created this concept on how bereaved parents can begin to heal their grief after the trauma of such a significant loss. And I dove into it and I quickly realized that this was a way that I could create some good out of such a horrific loss of a child. None of us as parents ever think that our child should die before us. But what we need to accept is that things like this happen. These tragedies occur around us all the time. And Dr. Casper's concept is in this trauma of these significant losses, growth and healing can occur. So immediately I felt very strongly that my destiny as Robin, a mom, a, a, a person, you know, I'm halfway, more than halfway through my life, I could entwine my destiny with the destiny that was interrupted in my son. And so he had talked often as he was in treatment about the fact that once he got clean, he wanted to be a substance abuse counselor and help others. So I'm, I, I have tried to be um, aware of when there are opportunities that I can honor what Ethan might have done in this world, his presence is not here on this earth, but what he might have done is being funneled through me in the things that we have done to honor Ethan. So I realized there's many hurting parents out there. And within several months after Ethan died, I um, learned of a national organization called GRASP, which assists families who have lost a loved one to drug addiction. And I opened a chapter here in Wisconsin in the Greenfield. And um, us parents and adult siblings and spouses come together twice a month and we help each other heal. This isn't about sitting around and belaboring the, the 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 painful journey of our child's or our, our siblings or our spouse's death. We do that, but then it's about how can we move on? How can we heal? We also, uh, my husband and I, started um, a run walk called Ethan's Run Against Addiction E R A A, and we're going. We held it last June, and and um, almost 800 people came out in Greenfield to walk or run three miles, and. Every bit of the race entry goes towards the fund that we established, the Ethan Monson Dupuy Opiate Recovery Fund. The money that we raised goes towards the opiate recovery program at Aurora Healthcare, a place that Ethan had received treatment and had done very well. We want to help those who may not have the resources to recover from opiate addiction and Ethan, I know, is smiling down from heaven, knowing that there are people who are benefiting from these resources. I um, 
I feel that this concept of co-destiny is one that has helped me to put one foot in front of the other, frankly, each day um, and not and not try to go back and relive the pain of of Ethan's illness. Certainly, we all do that um, who've lost a child. But it's um, something that I have tried not to get stuck in simply because what happens there is you start to die inside. And I, I want to live um, and I want to keep Ethan's memory alive and um, help, help others. Um, so this concept of co-destiny has been one that has made such a difference in my ability to move forward and heal because everything I've done um, everything our family has done to honor Ethan, um, it's as though a piece of him is still alive and it, it's still alive in every conversation we have with another person in which we speak of addiction as an illness rather than something to be shamed of. Every time that we um, help another grieving person, every time somebody else might benefit from the financial resources that the fund provides, we are going to chip away at this illness of addiction, this opioid epidemic, until the epidemic um, has eased and our young people are not dying at the rate that they're dying. And we have talked about what addiction really is. So, you know, there is all of these stigmas. And I unfortunately also had felt the shame of my mother passing and my brother passing those two specifically. Daniel, I, I didn't, I didn't really feel that shame because I think I had dealt with it in the two previous um, deaths that I had to, to deal with. So when we talk about destigmatizing this and what it really is, which is a brain disease. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, um, your perspective on the brain disease part of that mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. psychotherapist and mm -hmm. what you think the factors that would go into this brain disease? So just the concept of addiction being a an illness, um, that in and of itself challenges the, the the shame that's associated with addiction because an illness is something that can occur um, just about to anybody given the right factors, triggers, um, etc. If you see addiction as a moral failing, lack of willpower, um, um, lack of caring about the fact that you're hurting your loved ones or your family, or you're lazy and you don't care if you lose jobs or that you use or you steal. If you view it as a character flaw or a moral failing, well, it's certainly easy then to stigmatize addiction because who wants to be around somebody like that, right? Well, the, the, the hard part about this is those behaviors are in fact present in, they were present in Ethan. He did steal from us. This is a symptom of the illness. It's not the person. Ethan was not a thief. People who are who are dying and struggling with addiction, the opioid epidemic, these are not people who lack a moral compass. Their brain has become hijacked literally with these extremely powerful drugs now that are out there. And so the brain becomes 
so compromised in its functioning that trying to to um, manage one's life without the opioids surging through the brain becomes so challenging over time that once one is entrenched in uh, this this illness, you actually need medication-assisted treatment, otherwise known as MAT, to help the brain to quell the cravings for the drug so that the brain can then turn towards treatment take in the concepts of treatment, begin to learn how to um, live each day without the drugs surging through the brain. So that's how we would view cancer. Cancer has um, treatments and medications and in a, a course of steps one take one takes to hopefully recover, the same thing with addiction. There is medication. There are steps that need to be taken in order for the brain to recover from addiction. Now, we you you mentioned what are some of the of the maybe the predisposing factors. We know that some families, cancer, runs in the family. Every woman on the planet knows that she has to find out, you know, which aunts or grandmas or sisters might have had breast cancer. And it's, it's so common that we just know that family history because we know cancer runs um, in families. Well, addiction is very similar. Addiction is something that um, some brains are more predisposed when triggered by maybe a life event, such as a loss, or maybe the onset of depression or anxiety, both of which were triggers for Ethan. And so if addiction is latent, i.e. maybe sleeping, so to speak, in the brain, maybe if it's never triggered, it might not bloom. But there are many events in life that could trigger addiction. So one of the things that I like to tell kids about, young people, is know your family's history of addiction. Find out, was grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, people in your family history, did, were they struggling with, with addiction? If they were, find out about that and know that maybe you should be aware that you might be somebody that should be very careful about how much you drink or use drugs because you might be susceptible to that becoming an issue. Um, so understanding this illness means knowing if it runs in your family, understanding how it affects the brain. It's not a character flaw. Somebody with addiction is not a lazy um, uh amoralistic person. These are concepts that as they start to really saturate into our culture is going to shift the way we view addiction. I see some signs of that, but there's so much more that we can continue to do. Well, I consistently see online and in here about addiction being a choice that people mm -hmm. choose to be addicts. Um, I struggle with that. I, I really struggle with hearing that because nobody on this earth wakes up and says, I want something to control my entire life. I want to be debilitated by a drug. I want to be a slave to a drug and getting that drug every single day so that I'm not sick, so that I can function at all. What do you think about addiction being a choice? Well, you know, Melinda, that's a really great question. Um, 
And and you're absolutely right. No child of ours ever, you know, we hear our kids, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a doctor, an astronaut, or nobody says, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a heroin addict, right? I mean, that's just ludicrous. But this issue of choice, you know, addiction kind of tips on this concept of choice because there is no question people who use drugs, alcohol, Nobody is forcing them to lift the glass, to snort the heroin, to inject themselves. That is a choice in the beginning, okay? In the beginning, before addiction has grabbed hold of your brain, before the illness has grabbed hold of your brain, yes, there's the choice to use the first time, to use maybe the 10th time, to take that first drink. Those are our choices. I Make no mistake, there's choice in the beginning. Or say they know diabetes runs in the family and they choose to have a diet um, and lack exercise. Those are those are choices of lifestyle, of diet exercise that propels one maybe more towards than the illness blooming. I mean, those are choices that clearly can can cause that in the way that somebody who chooses to drink or use drugs and yet they know that addiction it, is 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 um, a, a factor in their her- heredity or their family history. They have to be very careful because what starts out as a choice can move towards the path of then illness. And that's, you know, that's the difference. Once one has cancer, the fact that cancer is in your body, that's no longer a choice that happened. The first time that you, that you um, found yourself consuming a diet that might propel you in that direction? Was that a choice? Yes. So I think that is a really good question. Choices to begin in the in, in the beginning of the illness to use is different than that once the addiction has occurred. Then using is then a way that that person with the addiction feels normal is able to even function. It's no longer about, oh, I'm partying or getting high because it's fun. I'm doing it because of my friends. No, at that point, there's this desperation of, if I don't get that drug, I can't function. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go into withdrawals. I, I'm going it, to, it's like hell on earth. So that's the cage part of it. What might've been an, an initial choice then becomes that cage. Yes, that that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And you know, I think that with that thought in mind, um, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that, I think, sometimes and understand that, you know, what may have started out as a kid having a good time, you know, in your teens. Um, and as you said, a lot of these teenagers aren't necessarily aware of their predisposition to. A, mental health issues, B, addiction. And um, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the correlation between mental health and addiction. So very good um, point. Just as we know, illness, medical illnesses in our body can sometimes be clustered together. This is the case with mental health disorders and substance use disorders. Um, there is a, a high rate, uh, 40 to 50% of those with substance use disorders have a co- what we call a co-occurring mental health diagnosis, oftentimes depression and or anxiety. And, 
and and I I have some of my thoughts about that, and and I think that we've all heard the language um, self soothing. Self-soothing is actually a skill that every competent, healthy adult needs to know how to do because, right, life is hard. Um, Challenges can come at us right and left, front and center. Um, And if we don't know how to calm and cope and soothe ourselves when we're in pain, we're lonely, we're scared, we're worried, we're we're struggling, we're nervous, we're anxious, self-soothing is a way of of getting through those challenging emotions. We are a culture in here in our country in which we don't like to feel those things. And so we distract ourselves with um, tons of stimulation through media, electronics, TV, anything to kind of distract. And distraction in and of itself is not a bad thing. But if we are always distracting ourselves from our emotions, um, or if we look to numb ourselves from normal emotional pain, and I think that's what our culture does, what that teaches our our young people is that those emotions are scary. We want to avoid them as opposed to face them and work through them. And so we're a culture that um, we were set up to to be kind of primed for what the medical community in the 90s was taught, which is, boy, you medicate pain um, because pain's not a good thing to feel. Well, right, nobody wants to feel pain. And I'm not really talking here about physical pain. I'm talking about emotional pain because depression and anxiety are horrible things to try to cope with. And so feeling down, feeling anxious, um, we, I think, fall back on this concept and this idea or this, this sense that we need, that we want to, we want to distance ourselves from our pain as much as possible. And so we're a culture that numbs ourselves against pain emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain. Addiction is also a disease of we have become so spiritually disconnected that that the pain is one that we want to try to distance ourselves from. So I I guess I'm kind of getting into another, uh, another arena here, which is how are we going to mitigate the the rampant um, presence of addiction in our culture. Well, addiction isn't just about substances. Addiction can see can be found in behaviors. It can be, uh, you know, such as gambling or pornography or other kinds of of repetitive um, behaviors or choices that cause us to turn away from facing difficult, painful, stressful um, experiences. And I think that as a culture we really struggle with with those kinds of emotions and we need to we need to turn towards towards coping mechanisms that will teach our our children our young people and us as adults that we don't want to cover those things up that we we don't need to take a pill we don't need to to drink to cover that up what we need to do is embrace it and find a way through it but can you tell some um other coping skills that you find helpful or that you suggest to your patients mm-hmm. so 
Um, you know, this is the other thing about our our American culture is the strategies that we tend to rely on are the ones that have an instant effect, right? And that, of course, is oftentimes substances or behaviors, you know, uh, get online and that instantly you're in another world or take a drink or take a pill or, and so you have this instant kind of um, um, feeling, yeah, gratification, good word, in which you can, you can just remove yourself from your emotional, psychological, spiritual um, um, place, so that's that you know this is the thing is that other strategies are not ones that necessarily work instantly particularly in the beginning as you're learning them it takes time to learn meditation okay meditation is is something that is extremely helpful in in calming and coping but it isn't something that one just turns on and says i'm going to sit down and meditate uh, it is it is initially challenging to turn our minds off of all of the chatter and the worry and the the to do list and the anxiety of the thoughts that race through our minds a million miles an hour to learn to turn that off and give our brains and our minds a, a, a chance to relax and rest and be free from the burden of all of that. Well, meditation is wonderful for that, but it takes time to learn. Um, yoga, Bi so body-centered practices like yoga or Tai Chi or Qigong, these body-centered practices help to calm some of those raging experiences of, uh, of, of fear or pain or loneliness, depression and anxiety certainly are diagnosable uh, conditions that can really benefit from uh, medications, can benefit from psychotherapy to uncover what might be some of the factors in one's life that are, are, are uh, propelling the depression and anxiety. But anxiousness and and feeling down are also normal human emotions that can be that can be calmed by some of these other kinds of practices um and i think that uh, they are becoming certainly more um accepted the uh opiate recovery program at aurora healthcare um ethan's fund does help to fund yoga and acupuncture because some of these other uh practices are very much indicated in the recovery of addiction, but they're also indicated for just actually coping with the tough spots in life. Or here's here's actually what I really would like for, for all of us to begin to think is that we don't wait until we're struggling to learn these things, but we learn these things as a way of preventing the, a, a, a downward slide where we feel like, I don't even know how I'm going to, you know, get up this morning. So just as we hear about preventative things that we need to do to care for our physical bodies, prevention and wellness, you know, is kind of a hot topic. And we know that there's certain things we should do every day to care for our bodies. But what we really also need to know is there are certain things we need to do on a regular basis to care for our heart and our spirit and our minds. I agree so much with that. And I feel like, you know, as a mother, I have four children and I really struggle with that self-care part. And it is so profound that you talk about doing it when you're in a good space, because I, unfortunately, right at this moment, I'm not in a good space. Four months ago, I was in a mighty fine space. So that is the time 
to start learning those practices so that, you know, it doesn't get to that. And that is, that's deeply profound to me. And I, I really um, can understand that. And I also understand that everybody always has excuses about taking care of themselves. Like I don't have time, you know, there's not enough hours in the day. And that is an, it's an understandable feeling that people have that. But if you do not take care of yourself, you cannot care for anybody else. And that is the truth of it. That's such a good point, Melinda. Really trying to make time for yourself, make time for getting through your grief, getting through the difficult times in life. And they're always going to be hard times. And especially for those who are really struggling with a loss, a great loss. It's, it's a very empty feeling. It's a very alone feeling. It's, it's very secluding. And, you know, I, I also think that that has to do with all of the stigma surrounding it, you know, and that shame that you feel it's like this club nobody wants to be in. Exactly. Right. And you're, you're right. Uh, holidays, um, are, are very difficult for people who have lost a loved one, um, uh, in general. But, um, you know, when we, when we think about our culture sort of presents the holidays. It's all this happiness and everybody is together and families love each other and they seem to be all intact families and doing well. And we can fall into the trap of comparing our situation of feeling, you know, stuck in, in grief and loss and think, you know what, nobody, I'm here alone and nobody um, understands how I feel, but you know what, that's not the case. Our grass group um, is a place where everybody there gets what it feels like to be in this space of incredible loss and we support each other to get through that to the other side. Um, anniversaries of the loss, uh, the birthdays of our loved one, those are our times that we feel that it's like a tsunami, you know, of pain that washes over us. But one of the things that I, you know, and our group has talked about this, our grasp group, is we can also use those anniversaries, those birthdays, those mark markings of the of the life of our of our child or our siblings or our spouse as opportunities to honor their life, to honor who they were separate from their addiction, honor uh, what they what the gifts were that they gave to us for the time that they were here on this earth in their physical body. And, you know, I feel like, unfortunately, winter seems to be, I mean, winter's difficult in Wisconsin. Um, for those of you who have never been in Wisconsin, it, it, it's it's dark here sometimes. It's cold. It's cold, <laughs> very cold. Um, and so, you know, some of us suffer from some seasonal depression, and I am one of those people that has seasonal depression. Well, unfortunately, I have birthday, anniversary date, Christmas, Thanksgiving, everything is at one time in, in a matter of four months. So uh, this just seems to be pretty common, this winter situation for people. And so, um, you know, I think that the seasonal depression does not help. And, and a lot of people have that going on. And then when it's um, compounded with all of these losses, you know, it can become really out of control really fast. If one is struggling with intense grief and loss, 
Um, reading can be very helpful if one likes to read, and there's many excellent grief books out there. If you go on the GRASP website, grasp.com, you're going to see um, some books that uh, are suggested for somebody who has lost a loved one to drug addiction. But you know what? We are actually, we're wired to be social creatures. And what is oftentimes most comforting when we are struggling is to be in the presence of somebody who simply cares and will just listen. That person doesn't even have to understand or be able to give advice about, you know, the stages of grieving. They just simply need to care about you, hold your hand and listen. And that kind of, of comfort, um, there, there's no substitute for it when we're in in pain uh, of the loss of of somebody who's not with us at Christmas or on their birthday. Um, and here's the reality: some of us don't have somebody like that in our lives, and hence that's why a group like Grasp, we now have 75 people on our email list. Um, there's a, a need to be in the presence of another human being who is there listening and is kind and compassionate. I agree. I think it's so important. So I just wanted to end with the information about the run that you are doing for Ethan. And um, I know the sign up is going to be soon. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, please. So um, we started this. Uh, Ethan was a cross country and track runner. And um, my family, my husband and and myself and, and Ethan's sister, Deva, were all runners. And one of the things that many people said to us um, in our from our group and others that we know who have lost someone is they're like, you know, I don't know what to do. How can we help? And I think that's the case with 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 many of us is, you know, not all of us are going to start a group or start a fund and we all have different strengths and ways to contribute. So a 5K run walk is something that most people enjoy doing on a Saturday morning in June. And so June 8th, 2019, we'll have our second annual ERAA, Ethan's Run Against Addiction. And all of the proceeds of the race entry fee go directly towards funding treatment at the Opiate Recovery Program through Aurora Healthcare. And it's a, a great way to come out and um, contribute to uh, something that is going to create a dent in our communities um, as this opioid epidemic continues raging. So um, June 8th, next uh, June uh, 2019, is an opportunity to come and run and walk. Um, and uh, we also encourage people to walk or run in honor of someone that they've lost or also in honor of someone who is in recovery. And we, ha we have them make signs and they we pay they're on their backs so that as they're running or walking, they're doing that in honor of, of their own loved one. I love that. And how does one sign up for that, Robin? Simply go to runsignup.com. And um, as of January 1st, um, ERAA will be um, posted and you can start signing up for that as of January 1. I'm going to be there. Oh, I'm, I'm so I'm glad, Melinda. I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I, I just want to thank you so much for your insight and for doing this with me. And sharing your son's story and your story as you talk about this co-destiny it is both of your stories to tell so it is such a profound thought for me to understand this co-destiny and for anyone that wants more information on co-destiny can you um just 
again, just provide the information? Yes. Um, Dr. Joe Casper, after the loss of his son, Ryan, at age 17, um, he uh, wrote a master's thesis, even though he's a physician, on this concept of co-destiny. He has a website. Um, you can go on his website, co-destiny, um, and uh, look up... Um, you could read the whole master's thesis, or you can just go on the website and learn more about this concept and how um, intertwining the destiny that might have been interrupted by your loved one who no longer is here on this earthly plane, how you can intertwine your destiny as you move forward in your life with what your loved one might have done if they were still here. So this whole conversation, Melinda, you, you and I have had, I feel very strongly my son's presence here. And I think he is just thrilled and smiling and so happy that his struggle it, it is a story of pain, but it's also a story of hope. And there's going to be others who are not going to lose their fight against addiction because all of us who've lost a loved one, you included, Melinda, and all of the families in the GRASP group and, and all across the country, we're speaking up. And in fact, we know that some of the most vocal groups of people fighting this opioid epidemic are the parents who are losing our, our young ones to this. So we need to band together. We need to know that our loved ones are, are, um, are on the other side and they are so thrilled and pleased that we are speaking up and not um, having their lives be in vain. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Robin, for all of the insight and information and just sharing your heart with us. I really appreciate it. And I know that whoever listens to this podcast will also appreciate it. For more information on the GRASP group, which is Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing, you can look up grasphelp.org for more information. Robin Monson Dupuy is the facilitator of this group, and her email address is rmonsondupuis at gmail.com. You could also contact her that way in order to find out more information about the group. It is a wonderful group. If you look up GRASP Group Greenfield, Wisconsin, you will find some interviews that Robin has also done. It is definitely worth looking into. All of these subjects are so close to my heart, and I really feel the need to provide some resources for folks that are going through this grief, especially at the time of the holidays. So this episode is really for anybody, not just necessarily people struggling with the loss of a person that is in addiction. It's also for anybody having some depression issues, anxiety issues, and what the healing of that looks like. So I am just so proud of this podcast and I'm so grateful that Robin was so willing to share with us. So thank you everybody so much. And remember, keep dancing through the storm.